Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Creative Control with Bish Connor. On this week's program, a closer look at the final years of one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, The Clash. While some fans and critics dismissed them, a new book called We Are The Clash, The Last Stand of a Band That Mattered, is in progress that aims to right some wrongs. Co-author and Washington, D.C.'s social activist Mark Anderson, who, by the way, introduced Fugazi at their first ever show at the Wilson Center in 1987, uh, Mark joins me to discuss The Clash and the Kickstarter campaign to get the book going. Also, Montreal turntablist Kid Koala is at the Luminato Festival in Toronto this week with a special version of his Space Cadet show, uh, bringing his graphic novel to life in a very unique way. I'll ask him all about it. This week's episode of Creative Control with Vish Khanna is brought to you by the Eden Mills Writers' Festival, which celebrates its 25th anniversary this September 13th to 15th in the beautiful village of Eden Mills, just outside of Guelph, Ontario. Over the last quarter century, the festival has grown into a nationally acclaimed and widely respected literary event dedicated to promoting and raising awareness of Canadian literature, both young emerging authors and writers and very well-established ones, and they have a very exciting program planned for this year. For more information about the festival, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. The basic trajectory and history of The Clash is fairly well-known by now. They were politically charged punk rockers from England who left this world in the mid-'80s as one of the most influential and significant rock and roll bands of all time. But the last two years of the band's existence, after Joe Strummer kicked principal songwriter Mick Jones and drummer Topper Hedden out so that he and Paul Simonon could take the band in a new direction, is often glossed over and erased from memory. Even the 1985 LP Cut the Crap is often excised from all official clash box sets, films, and what have you. But a new book is in progress that suggests that this final era of The Clash is more important than fans realize. Authors Mark Anderson, who co-wrote the amazing book Dance of Days, Two Decades of Punk in the Nation's Capital, and Ralph Hybutsky, a musician and author in his own right, have launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise $15,000 by June 17th so that they can complete work on We Are The Clash, The Last Stand 
of a band that mattered. Here now to discuss this further is Mark Anderson. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, no problem. Now, can you tell, tell me why The Clash matter to you? I want to take a, uh, a hint from your title, but I'm curious about you personally. Why does The Clash matter to you? Well, I mean, you have to understand where I first encountered them. I mean, my first encounter with The Clash was in Williston, North Dakota. I was in a, uh, a drugstore where I went to look at rock and roll magazines. I was, at that time, uh, probably 16 years old. And uh, I had grown up in one of the most rural, isolated parts of the United States. And for me at that time, as kind of a lost and lonely teenager, rock music was my lifeline. I, I just kind of learned about it. I was just starting to get into the 60s-related uh, artists primarily, um, and uh, so I was in checking out this magazine called Rock Scene, and I opened up uh, this magazine and saw a picture of the band uh, The Clash playing the song White Riot. Um, now, this is spring of 1977, and the, the, the ferocity of the band, the intensity, and, and just the appearance of them, I mean, it was very, very striking. Uh, there were some lyrics reprinted um, underneath the caption, although they actually weren't from White Riot. They were from the song 1977 hmm. that said, No Elvis Beatles or the Rolling Stones in 1977. And it just grabbed a hold of me because the the thing, I, I love a lot of the 60s stuff like MC5, the Kinks, uh, uh, the Stones, uh, uh, the Who, um, Jefferson Airplane, Hendrix Joplin, those kind of folks. But it had happened. It, it was really another generation's music. And I was kind of uh, looking backward to a moment that had passed. And when I saw that picture of the clash, I felt like something was happening now, something that was relevant to me that I could be part of. And, uh, and, and that, that feeling only grew as I, as I read interviews with them. I uh, heard their music for the first time later that year and then just became uh, an acolyte of, of the band, if you will. They, I've listened to literally thousands of rock bands. If there was a single band over my life who has been most important, it would have to be The Clash um, or Fugazi. <laughs> sure. running running neck and neck there. Um, but the, the Clash were absolutely transformative for me as, as, a, as a teenager trying to find my way in the world. Um, and, uh, and so for me, uh, just about everything that I have done as an activist or an artist or, or really as a person, in one way or another, can be traced back in part to uh, my encounter with the clash. Wow, I mean that's a that's a huge impact. That's amazing. And 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 did you ever end up seeing the band live? Yeah, it's ironic because of course you know I am uh, I'm in Montana. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm in Montana for almost the entire life of the band. Uh and the Clash never played Montana. Um uh so no, I never did actually see them live. I did have an opportunity to see them on their final tour. Um this is when I was a uh an activist. Now I was at Montana State University, so I was in the western part of the state uh, as opposed to the eastern part. And they were playing in Denver, and, and that was, uh, you know, hundreds of miles to drive, but people did it to see rock concerts. And a friend had a ticket and invited me along. Um, ironically, I, I chose not to go um, because 
it would have meant I had to cancel uh, a talk I was giving about uh, the situation in Central America, hmm. um, because of course at that time the the United States was deeply involved in um, wars in Central America, uh, wars that we uh, essentially saw as uh, a way to fight the Soviet Union, but that ended up with us supporting dictators and death squads and with tens of thousands of people dead. Um, and I had partly gotten drawn into activism around Central America because I listened to The Clash. Hmm. Of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, their fourth album was named Sandinista, a reference directly to uh, one of those Central American guerrilla groups that the U.S. was fighting. Um, uh, Combat Rock, if you look at the uh, the title they give it, the little uh, uh, code, um, it's coded FMLN something something. FMLN is a, uh, a reference to the guerrilla group in El Salvador that the United States was directly fighting or indirectly fighting through our support for the Salvadoran military. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I chose not to go see The Clash because I felt like what The Clash had taught me through their songs was that even though music is extraordinarily important, activism is more important. What we do, how we live, um, and and I didn't feel right uh, uh, canceling uh, an event about something I cared about uh, in order to see the clash. I did see Joe Strummer uh, several times and interviewed him uh, later on in later years when he was with the mes well with the Mescaleros and also on his earthquake weather tour. Oh, okay. But uh, you know, I, I yeah. Well, that must have been a, a huge moment for you to have to, to be actually be able to speak with Joe. It was, um, and I was very impressed with him as a person, although part of what impressed me was how frank he was. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was sitting there talking to him, and, and to be frank, the show that he had played, they played a lot of the songs I loved, but it didn't seem like his heart was in it. Um, it, was, it was like he wasn't believing his songs. Hmm. Um, and so the, the show, not that he wasn't putting out effort, but you didn't get the sense I didn't get the sense that he was meaning what he was saying somehow. Mm -hmm. So after afterwards, when I was interviewing him, I asked him, you know, essentially, if you had to say what your message is today, what would it be? Um, and he looked kind of sad, and he said to me, well, I, I don't really think I have a message today. Life goes up, life goes down. It's a funny ride. Mm -hmm. um, now, you, <laughs> you can imagine that that was a little um, hard to hear coming from him. Um, but it was also very touching because what you saw there was the human being behind kind of the, the political icon, if you will, uh, the, the, the rock star, quote-unquote. Um, because if there was anything that The Clash projected, it was that sense of belief. Um, you could call them naive, romantic, um, contradictory, but I, I don't think, and, and I certainly don't believe that you could say they didn't believe in, in what they were doing, and particularly Strummer. Right. Um, I think that's actually some of the, the, the human drama, because the clash from, in many ways from the outset, is a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, how, do you, how do you live in that contradiction? I mean, it's a very powerful place to live. I mean, essentially, um, the band set out to be the biggest rock and roll band in the world, and at the same time, revolutionaries. Anti-capitalist revolutionaries. How do you do those two things? How do you? How can you be an anti-capitalist revolutionary on CBS Records? Right. Um, it's a good question. Um, and 
and yet um, part of the resonance of their story is is them wrestling with that that contradiction. And certainly, that that if you don't understand that contradiction, it makes no sense uh, what happens in the last two years or three years of the band. Um, because on commercial terms, it looks like they're committing suicide. Right. And you have, uh, in this book, chosen to focus on that. What is significant to you about the, the last couple of years of the band's existence? Well, essentially, um, they, they in, in one sense, succeed um, with combat rock. I mean, they had been building in popularity, especially in the United States, over a number of years, ever since London Calling, especially, and, and the song Train in Vain. But with combat rock, they were full-fledged megastars. You know, they, they were on a stadium tour with, um, with The Who. Uh, they later headlined one of the headliners at the US Festival with, you know, half a million, maybe a million people there. I mean, they were about as big as a rock band can get. And, and so on one hand, you would say, well, they've succeeded. On the other hand, um, the, song that, the songs that made them popular were hardly revolutionary anthems. I mean, certainly uh, Rock the Casbah has a message and is, uh, I think, actually a very powerful song lyrically, but Train in Vain or Should I Stay or Should I Go, they're essentially pop rock songs. Right. Um, and, 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 and then how do you feel? You're, you're playing career opportunities. You know, the song of working class desperation born out of, you know, the gray oppressive economic reality of, of, the, uh, of Britain. And you're playing it in Shea Stadium. You have to feel a little bit like a fraud, like you are, in fact, turning rebellion into money. Um, as, as one of the Clash's earlier songs, uh, White Man and Hammersmith Palais, had warned. Right. Um, so what do you do? Um, and, uh, I mean, there's, there's a couple things you can easily do. Uh, one is pretty simple. You just don't worry about it, and you just ride it. I mean, I think that's what a lot of rock bands would do. I mean, you're popular. You 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 don't mess with the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, and you know the revolutionary stuff. Well, it's nice. Maybe you'll give a nod to it here and there. But uh, you know, mostly you enjoy the fact that you are now a successful rock and roll star. Mm-hmm. Um, and to his credit, I think Strummer in particular was not comfortable with that. Now he he was complicit. I mean, he'd been working towards this, but then once he got it. Um, and it, 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 it didn't it didn't feel right clearly. Um, and you can see this some if you watch the video of the US Festival. Like they play this song um, to this huge festival in sunny Southern California, Armageddon time. And and you know the opening lines of the song are, uh, a lot of people won't get no supper tonight. A lot of people won't get no justice tonight. Um, and you know just such plain spoken but poignant words about the reality of, of poverty, desperate, grinding poverty for so much of the world's population. And, and they're playing it in this context, which is, in a sense, uh, the epitome of kind of Western decadent affluence. Um, and so it's a great place to play it, but, but also you can see that Strummer is not feeling like he's connecting with the crowd. And, and for those folks who grew in the punk world, that was what was so energizing about it. There was almost no separation. At its best, there was no separation between the audience and the band. You were the same. And that kind of intimate engagement is extraordinary. It's transformative. But now you've got, you know, 
a football field between you and your audience. It's this huge sea of people, and you're singing these songs about revolution, but are they anything other than a commodity to, to, to people? A good question. And, and so what do you do? Um, and, uh, you know, essentially what Strummer and Simonon, together with their, their manager, Bernie Rhodes, who really has to be seen as not only a co-founder of the band, but as a, an actual member of the band, uh, decided uh, that they were going to go back to punk rock roots, that they lost their way, and uh, that they had to get right, if you will. Sure. Um, so the book then documents this sort of transition period from being one of the world's biggest rock and roll bands to getting back to punk. Well, yeah, no, and that was, at least that's the rhetoric of, of that moment. And, of course, what happens is, you know, Topper Hedden is ejected uh, in principle because of his heroin addiction. Uh, Mick Jones is later ejected in principle because he's become impossible to work with. He's acting like a rock star diva. Um, in other words, they're cutting away the parts of the band that seem to be uh, holding them back, keeping them trapped in kind of this, this uh, rock and roll cliché. Right. Now, they also are cutting away the parts of the band who wrote two and a half of their three hit singles. <laughs> and, of course, anybody who knows, you know, musicians, uh, you know, who follow these things know that, that Hedden and Jones are extraordinarily gifted musicians. Right. Um, whereas right. Simonon and Strummer, although extraordinarily gifted, are not natural musicians. They're, they're not, they, they, they did not have uh, the same... Uh, the same uh, skills, if you will. They weren't as adept at this. And so it's, it's going to be challenging for them to write material that can stand next to um, uh, what uh, particularly Mick Jones had written. Sure. Um, and, and so if you look at it, it, it makes no sense. You're, you're, you're essentially destroying the band. Mick Jones has been quoted as saying you know, that that was, ranks with the, the worst mistake in rock and roll history him being kicked out. Um, and, and the general story is that when he's kicked out, the band is over. Um, end of story. And, and you see that all the time in Westway to the World, in The Clash's own kind of official uh, books, um, and, and most recently in uh, the Sound System box set, which is due to come out uh, later this year, I think in September. Yeah. This whole period, the last two years, are, are erased from history. Now, why is that? Why, why has it been erased? Just because... Uh, who's erased it? Is it the band itself? Or, or I mean, it seems like fans have also disregarded it as well. Well, I mean, I think that there, there, there are some legitimate criticisms of their final album, Cut the Crap, um, no doubt about it. Um, for someone like myself who's listened very closely and at great length to um, the, this last version of the band, the Clash Mark II, as they're often called, I know that that record does not represent um, the best of their material or the best of their performances. It's, it's a record uh, made under extraordinary, perhaps unprecedented circumstances. Essentially, a, banded, a new version of the band had been put together who honestly was coming together in a beautiful way. If you listen to the live tapes over the course of their U.S. tour um, or even their later shows in Italy and uh, in the minor strike benefits at the end of 84, you can hear an extraordinary band. It's not just, some, yeah, as some people dismiss it, as a Clash cover band uh, fronted by Joe Strummer. It is a powerful band writing and performing not only the old material, um, 
well, but new material that can stand next to it. Um, but Bernie Rhodes, in particular, made a determination that that wasn't good enough, that they had to do something, to quote uh, Nick Shepard, the guitar player in the band uh, at that time, the original guitar player who had first replaced uh, Mick Jones. Bernie Rhodes had the idea for a monumental record. It had to be a great leap forward. Um, and so essentially, you assemble this new unit, and they're battle-tested at this point with extraordinary new songs, and, and I think, um, you know, demonstrated skill. And you pull it all apart. And you create a new version of this in the studio. Now, in some ways, it's, it's a brilliant idea, um, but Bernie Rhodes also was destroying the spirit of the band in the process, and he did not himself, I believe, have the uh, musical and production chops to to realize what could have been a you know a really extraordinary idea. Hmm. Having said that, though, actually, if you go and listen to um, "Cut the Crap" with a fair ear, you will find some extraordinary Clash songs there, Clash of Clash song, Clash songs there. Hmm. You know, Three Card Trick, Movers and Shakers, Are You Ready for War? I mean, others. These are are, are, are outstanding songs. Um, but um, it's fair to say that, that Strummer, I think at that point, kind of lost heart and uh, decided he had made a mistake and ultimately uh, tried to put the band back together with Jones. When that failed, he just let go of it all. Right. Um, now, there are things going on in his personal life that help to explain some of what happened, um, but that's, that's, a, that's another story, and I've kind of gone on, so let me bring it back around to you. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Well, I, in this book, We Are the Clash, The Last Stand of a Band That Mattered, I mean, I understand that it's in progress. Can you maybe give us a, a sense of where you're at with the book thus far? Well, we've done a bunch of interviews. Um, we've... Um, gathered a lot of documentary material. I mean, we have 60 to 70 live performances from this version of the band, including some, I mean, just some absolutely tremendous shows, some of which are from the, the little-known, but I think really uh, extraordinary busking tour, which was the very last uh, tour, British tour that the band did, actually the last tour of any kind that the band did, where they essentially, they finished recording Cut the Crap and were feeling so kind of distant or, or disconnected as a band that they decided they would j literally just go hitchhiking, um, bring along acoustic guitars, um, play for whoever they met for free. And they did that for two and a half weeks in the north of England. Uh, and then the north, that they did it in the north is significant because this, again, part of what we're trying to do with the book is we're trying to place what's happening with the band in the larger socio-political context. And that moment, 1984-85, is a key turning point in UK history, and I would say in world history, because a titanic confrontation is taking place between the government of Margaret Thatcher and the uh, British Miners' Union. Um, and in the end, Thatcher wins, and, and her version of politics and economics also becomes ascendant. Um, and so in a sense, this is a sad story. It's not only ultimately the collapse of the clash, um, but also the collapse of a certain, if you will, English dream, the, 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 the socialist dream that rose after uh, the end of World War II. Um, 
and and the breakthrough of of what we struggle with now this neoliberal free market uh economics which have become essentially uh enshrined as as our god if you will in many regards right um but the clash in their last kind of dish effort to to realize what i think is actually a beautiful vision and and arguably exactly the right thing to be doing um went out and busked you know just played for free for people um in the north of England, and the north is the part of England, part of the United Kingdom, that was sledgehammered by the defeat of the minor strike, that was on the losing end of almost every policy Margaret Thatcher enacted, particularly around economics. Um, And so um, it was, in a certain sense, a last stand. But even if we lose sometimes, and and the clash did lose, uh, you know, the left, if you will, did lose in that moment, just to hold up that vision as something to continue to strive for is 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 crucial, and I think that's part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to, uh, you know, look at there's look at this in three levels. There's a level of just personal struggle of of these people in this particular band at that moment, and and we want to bring out that human story. There is also the artistic story about what is accomplished and unfortunately now largely lost to history. Uh, Most people just ignore this. I think the music, the art that was created at that time, is absolutely worthy of of appreciation and study. And Hmm. so that's the second level. And the third level is, what is the ultimate meaning of this in its sociopolitical context? Not only what did it mean at that time, but what resonance is there for us today as as we struggle um, with, with these issues of economic justice, of of government power and surveillance, of the gap between the rich and the poor, um, and 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 you know most fundamentally the meaning of our lives. I think this is an incredible story, a story that has deep meaning not only then but now and for the future. Um, and so that's why we're focused on it. We're, I'm lucky to be working with Ralph because um, Ralph is really the original um, scholar writer to focus on this period, to go and interview the people who are involved in making Cut the Crap, to interview the new members of the Clash, and to start getting their story out, to argue against this uh, erasure from history. Um, and so he really blazed the trail in a certain sense. And uh, we actually were both working on this, and when we found out, we decided just to work together, because together I think we can create a book that's better than what either one of us could do on our own, and a book that's worthy of the story. It sounds completely fascinating to me, because I know this period a little bit, but not as much as uh, I've already learned so much about it just from speaking to you, so I can't wait to read this book. You've started a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, what can people do to to contribute to the completion of this book? What is your hope? Yeah, well, first of all, go and visit our Kickstarter uh, Kickstarter site or our wearetheclash.com uh, website in general, um, and you'll learn a lot more about what we're working on. You'll get to see some old interviews. You'll get to hear some of the music that was made. Um, and if you if you feel so moved, you can help us make sure that this book becomes a reality. Um, we do have one week, you know, until June 17th, to raise uh, a little bit over five thousand dollars. Now we are close to two thirds funded, which is which is good news. We've had tremendous support. But uh, that means we've got to raise still a lot of money in just seven days. So please go to our uh, website, wearetheclash.com. 
uh, go to our Kickstarter uh, site. If you can give money, uh, if you can't, then spread the word. Um, there is a meaning in uh, our title that is beyond the obvious, and I'll, I'll kind of give people a peek into that. We Are the Clash is, of course, one of the songs that this last version of The Clash wrote, uh, initially, probably simply to assert that they were in fact a clash because at the time the song was written, there was um, rumor and I think some reality to the story that Mick Jones and perhaps Topper Hedden were going to form their own clash. And so they were essentially staking their claim uh, that they were the real clash. Um, but, uh, which, in, you know, the song is, has been criticized by some. It's you know, there's lots that could be said about the song um, and that, that, that kind of, you know, assertion, for better or for worse. Right, okay. What I think a lot of people miss uh, what ultimately became the meaning of the song for Strummer because um, if you go to the Minor Strike Benefits, which they did, they were actually their last London shows, um, December 6th and 7th of 1984, right at the point when things were very dire for the strike and, and people who were honest, knew that the strikers were in trouble. Um, uh, the, the, the strike was not likely to be won. That Thatcher just outmaneuvered them. Um, but nonetheless, the Clash played these shows. And um, right before um, they played We Are the Clash the first night, Strummer said, um, Strummer said, um, when I say We Are the Clash, I'm talking about considerably more than five people you know, referring to the band on stage. Right. The second night he said, when I say we, I mean we and gesture to the crowd, which is to say that it's not just the people who are on stage who ultimately were the clash for Strummer. We are the clash. All of us, all of us who care about their music, who believe in what they stood for, believe in their songs. And, and now that the band will never play again, we are the ones who are left here to try to realize that vision, uh, a vision of a just, peaceful, and humane world. Hmm. Um, so in that sense, it is only appropriate that we would be asking folks to not only contribute money, but to contribute their stories and their other support for this. Um, because if this book is the powerful and I hope transformative book that we, we want it to be, it will be because all of you out there have contributed to it in whatever way you can. Um, that is how we will make We Are the Clash live and breathe and matter in the year 2013, 2014, and beyond. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's a, it's a beautiful sentiment, and it sounds like a very crucial story. Uh, the book is We Are the Clash, The Last Stand of a Band That Mattered. It is in progress now, and as Mark said, you can contribute to its Kickstarter campaign by visiting wearetheclash.com. Mark, it was a great thrill to speak to you, and a pleasure. Good luck with the book. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks to all the folks who supported us. One of Canada's great, if not somewhat underrated, artists is Montreal turntablist Kid Koala. He always comes up with interesting projects, and this week he's taking his Space Cadet show to a whole new level uh, at the Luminato Festival on Thursday and Friday at The Hub in David Pico Square. Two evening performances. It's a great show. I saw it last year in Toronto, and you don't want to miss it. And uh, here now to discuss it further is Kid Koala. Hey, Kid Koala, how you doing? How's it going? Oh, it's uh, it's going just fine. I I have a chest cold. I'm trying to get over it. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> no illness. Full stop. <laughs> so uh, you're bringing uh, Space Cadet back to uh, Toronto, but uh, has a slightly different uh, sensation, I suppose. Uh, can you maybe tell people a little bit about uh, uh, the Space Cadet experience and what you what you're doing new with it uh, here at, here in Toronto this week? Yeah, this is our third time out with this show tour. And um, for this version, Luminato uh, introduced me to some people at IFS, which is a company called International Flavors and Fragrances. And they basically uh, design some of the world's most famous uh, fragrances from perfumes and colognes all the way to, uh, you know, flavors for gums and like chewing chewing gums and uh other types of things so they're 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 some kind of scientists they're scientists of some kind yeah it's a lab um in new york and there's a bunch of people that work for them um but they introduced to me uh this lady named celine burrell and she's sort of one of the hot up-and-coming fragrance designers there, perfumers, and she was given a copy of this basic book and the soundtrack, and she basically picked five pages that she, you know, resonated with her, and then and then she decided to create actual scents for each of these pages. So, in a way, it's an, an, an olfactive score to compliment the book nice olfactive score i like the sound of that i haven't heard anyone ever say that before that's amazing me neither i had i just uh you know at first i didn't our first few conversations together i didn't really know where it could go i was like okay so we want to bring the that idea of scent into the live show how is that going to work and how do you distribute scents how do you you know what's possible right and uh, you know, at first I thought it was going to be a very 
kind of literal thing. I was like, oh, is it, uh, is it just going to be like a scratch and stiff sticker or something? And <laughs> here's a scene where he's, he's burning some food. Can we get like a burnt food smell in there? And I soon realized that uh, I was dealing with uh, somebody who's like way beyond <laughs> in terms of level of, of craft and, and, um, ability right and so so she kind of really you know opened my head up to to what is what what they're able to do with scent and and especially her i mean she's an uh, artist in her own right and basically i mean she speaks in terms of in musical terms too when she's talking about composing a, a scent and that's when it it really clicked for me, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. And I, huh. Where where it wasn't so much about a literal like, okay, here's a page where, you know, for instance, yeah, the robot was in the, in the kitchen burning food, and we wanted the smell of burnt food. That's not. She actually went so far as to to say, okay, well, now I mean, this this page is very nostalgic, and she would know what the smell of nostalgia is. <laughs> and I was like, "How do you know that?" You know? But it's kind. Of, wow, well, that is. Well, just just as like there's a certain musical chord that could bring you back there, or you know, certain there's tones that you can play on a piano that would sort of bring you to a to a, a nostalgic place or a melancholy place or or a safe place or you know a dangerous place. She can do that with scent. Yeah, you know that and, that totally makes sense. I mean, we uh, I, no pun. I didn't mean that. No pun intended. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just I didn't mean that at all. I just mean it does totally make sense that that uh, a smell could bring you back to a mood or a time in your life. And mm-hmm. this book of yours, just so people understand it, you wrote this graphic novel, Space Cadet, and mm-hmm. uh, it uh, it it tells the story. Oh yeah. It is. It tells the story. Yeah, entire, I, I should probably explain, right? People don't know, <laughs> don't know what we're talking about. What are these guys talking about? Yeah, yeah. So you write. Not only do not know. It's yeah. all. It's all. <laughs> the story is told completely in illustrations that you drew, and then you bring it to life in a live performance by kind of. You you also created a soundtrack. Like the book comes with a CD, and and you yes, can, basically like, it's it's this sort of paperback silent movie, I guess would be the best way to describe it. And right. I, did, I did a score for it so that, you, you know, which sort of brings me back to my early love of film, um, like the Charlie Chaplin films and things like that, where, where it was basically a silent movie with no dialogue, but then there would be this, you know, piano score, some musical score. Right, right. Um, a, attached to it afterwards. Right, and then the way the, and then the way yeah. you present it live is actually extremely unique. And can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Because I I could just tell people about it because I've been to it and it was fun. Mm. But I mean, <laughs> I feel like you should do it. I feel like you're the subject of the interview. Well, you should the, probably tell people what. Yeah, I mean, it, the, basically, the, it's a yes, it's a 125 page graphic novel. Uh, it's a story about family, the parent child relationship, and it's it goes. Um, you know, about that cycle of generations. Basically, uh, it's told in a number of flashbacks. And as you read through it, you kind of piece together this this unique bond that the, the two characters have. And, and it's kind of a melancholy story. And the music uh, was composed shortly after my first daughter was born. So it 
I was in a big kind of parental bubble mode or both Corinne and, and I where we kind of just turned the house into this sanctuary of of calm <laughs> quiet I guess because all we want to do is surround this baby with like <laughs> calm and quiet and I think musically what, what ended up happening was um it, it's basically a, a collection of, of lullabies right for just sort of inspired by that that time in my life but also and also the tone and the themes in the story itself are all kind of culminating in in, in that right and right. so to present it live i decided you know let's get as far away from the dance floor you know club loud decibel experience as we can and and just try to do something really cozy and intimate and, and has that tone to it so after talking a few times with Corey about it you know we said oh, it'd be fun to do a show where everybody's just lying on the floor basically that's you know that's as far as I could think of getting from people jumping up or moshing or crowd surfing or anything like you know it's basically the the antithesis of that type of show <laughs> you know right so everyone so, is sort of reclined and they've got you they've got headphones they've not got even headphones. sort of reclined they are reclined okay. I mean, we have right. we have these like inflatable space pods that that we bring in are they from space backrest that everybody just sort of chillaxes <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, okay. So basically, you're on stage and you're you're performing the Space Cadet show, and people are basically having a nap, and they've got headphones on and they're listening to music. Absolutely, yeah. They're if listening they, to your music. If they fall asleep. I think that would be the 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 ultimate compliment during this concert, at least. Forget applause. I've put it in the zone. Right, applause and cheering. You don't want to hear that. You want to hear snoring. Well, they could. I mean, they they could applaud and cheer if they wanted to. I wouldn't be able to hear it anyway because I like the audience members are all wearing headphones. Right. Okay. So this is so and, and then and also it's there's really a... it's it's really about the the kind of it's a quiet time show and it's it's really about opening that idea up where it's not like okay I have to do this set I have to keep this tempo I have to keep this decibel level and the, and the, even within dynamics it's still like based on trying to keep uh, a floor of audience members grooving to a certain extent. I mean, I think that's, that's usually the idea at a show, and I guess it's still the idea in this show, but the groove is way, way slower on this one. Right, okay. So and then so by having, having all the audience members lying down in a kind of chill-out pod situation that we've set up, it allows you to sort of unhinge a bit and actually change the tempo of what a live music show could be. Right. Which is what I really enjoy about performing this show. It, it, in, in many ways, it's a lot more dangerous <laughs> feeling to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get the same amount of adrenaline as I do from like doing a rock show or playing some loud electronic music festival kind of now the other scenario, the, but the, this, there's something about it. I think it's just like it's just it's very. I don't know. It, it, there's an urgency to it because it's so connected, you know. Because everybody's literally wearing headphones, and the music couldn't 
possibly be any closer to their ears. Right. You know? Right. And the other aspect and of it, that, you know, there's the other aspect ahead. is that you've got a visual element to this space cadet show where you've got actual images behind you that are pro- being projected of the book, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. There's a combination of, of visual sort of components in this show. One is, stills, slides uh, of, of actual pages from the book. The other is animations based on scenes from the book that were done by my friend Lillian Chan mm-hmm. from the National Film Board. And third, um, that we're actually introducing in in this version is an audience uh, participation kind of moment, which I don't want to give away now, but they're basically in charge of uh, the lighting and the visual for one one or two of the pieces in, in in the show. Nice. So we'll see if that works. <laughs> and then you've added this. I, you've added I, I don't know. I have a lot of faith in my audience to be able to pull that kind of stuff off. For so. sure, for sure. It's a it's a good smart audience. You've also now added this, as you alluded to earlier, this olfactory olfactory kind of aspect to it, where people will be smelling things that they're seeing. I suppose. Uh, can you? What is it about sort of that sensory overload that 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 seems to be part of this show now that that appeals to you, where like all your senses now are being engaged? It's, yeah, it's not so much an overload as an immersion into this kind of universe. But I, I think with anything, it's not really about my universe so much as if you can find some way to relate to it and. I think from that, even when when I draw, even with these characters that are kind of blank slate characters, so to speak, that's why I do actually like robots because they don't. People can always assign their own interpretation of what that character is feeling, and it usually would be joined to what they would be feeling in that same situation. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and it also gets me out of actually having to draw more complex characters sometimes because I'm lazy. <laughs> right. You, you're kind of... <laughs> so basically, that, I mean, there's that. And then musically, like the music here, like it's a, it's a collection of lullabies all intertwined in there was my experience in becoming a new parent um, at the time. And, and musically, this is what happened. Right or, the, or that I was the music that I was compelled to make at the time. So whether you have kids or you don't have kids, you might be able to find some moment in time where you felt that kind of tranquility or 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 isolation or ex- excitement or uh, nervousness or whatever it is about you know being on the brink of a new stage in your life. And I think that is there already kind of grafted in the music whether I wanted it to be or not and when people hear it I think they respond to it um, because of that that's that's what that's the energy and and the activity that was helping me create that music but then when I play that music you know when people relate to it it's not always oh I exactly know what you're talking about or sometimes it's just like oh I've I've been on tour before and I and it felt like floating in space or something like that and this music is the perfect kind of travel stuff music for that you know a lot of people have t- told me that about the space cadet score and in, in, in terms of 
this is the perfect airplane music. Well, they, well, that makes sense. I spent a lot of time on airplanes. You right, know what I mean? right. or, or, or I play this for my child to calm them down. Just think they're like, that's great because they're kind of lullabies, you know, and, yeah. and uh, other people are like, this is great music to draw to. And I'm like, okay, yeah, well, I'm glad, you know, they're pulling that out of it too. And I think with, with the scent scenario, I mean, we've heard it all before where they say it was like, that's the scent that's most connected to your memory. And, in essence, this book is about memory and nostalgia and kind of going through flashbacks and chapters in your life and mm-hmm. realizing how those culminate in the person you end up being. And and so that is that was one of those things when I, I realized that, oh, okay, well, that's a component that I've never actually, because I don't actually know how to manipulate or use it in any kind of way. But when I met Celine Burrell, that's that, you know, I found this kind of coke and spare. Someone who, you know, I think at her core is that she's a very romantic person um, in terms of she has this idea that, okay, with smell, you can create these things. Like she can literally paint the feeling of isolation with these six ingredients at these percentages like she'll know how to do that and i'm like wow you know before i met her i was kind of just a a bit kind of unaware <laughs> i guess would be the best best way to describe you know my vocabulary for describing smells would be good bad you know sure sure sour you know what i mean like those types of things and she she just sort of took it to a whole other level for me and and so i'm really excited and as far as i'm concerned she's the star of space kid at 3.0 i think (laughs) if the show worked because her scent component um would have made it even more connected connective for people She kind of because you're playing in an open space, like an open outdoor space. You're playing the hub at David Pico Square, uh, where you played mm-hmm. last year with Deltron Thirty Thirty. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, has she yeah. explained to you how she's going to sort of disseminate the scents into the air? Like how? how well, are... basically, we've we've created these uh, scent kits. So it's a, it's a you know like a four by six kind of matchbook, if you will, um, oh, hmm. that opens up and then. It actually has all her perfumer notes in it for each scent, so you can read about some of the ingredients that she chose to to create these feelings. And um, there's uh, five vials, small sort of tester vials. So Uh you basically, uh, at a certain point in the show, I will show the page that inspired her to create that scent. Everyone can kind of pull out that vial and and, uh, experience that. And then I would play... Um, if there were one, I would play the actual uh, soundtrack piece that's closest to that scene. Yeah, I've never done this before. So like, <laughs> I've done everything up until the olfactive part we're, sending, we're bringing in, and I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, you know, I'm trying to integrate it as smoothly as possible. But when I spoke to her, I know, you know, 
like I said, I, I found someone with a, a really kind of kindred spirit in, in men. But when she spoke to me, actually, about the, the creating the sense, and she speaks completely compositionally. She says, here's the chord, or in their world, they call it an accord. Right. <laughs> like, this is the chord for the smell, and this I wanted this to be the high note, and I wanted this to be the you know the baseline, you know. And when I, <laughs> I was like, you're speaking in musical terms, and then and I understood that, but when I actually started smelling deeper, I could tell that that's what was going on exactly. Here's the lead, here's the harmony, and all this stuff, but she's doing it olfactively. Right. That's really cool. I mean, I, and I think this is one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I, for me anyway, this is why I always like to follow what you're up to because you always come up with interesting ideas and people are always, uh, I think pe- interesting people seem to gravitate towards you with their ideas. I mean, the last time we ran into each other uh, was in St. John's and you were talking about how uh, Baz Luhrmann just kind of saw one of your Space Cadet shows in Los Angeles and then asked you to take part in the in the Gatsby soundtrack. And that that is a, I think that's a marker of both your yeah. skill and, you know, that's good luck and good timing. But I think people, <laughs> you, you're making stuff that speaks to people. They they want to they want to work with you on something, and, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's, that's that's pretty cool. I guess at its at its root, sometimes they just see somebody doing their thing or or trying to do their thing. You know what I mean, that's everybody that I met, no matter what kind of area of the industry or whatever industry they're in that they're usually deep into it if that makes any sense whether they're chefs or filmmakers or perfumers or you know animators what have you the people that i usually get along with are just pretty passionate about what it is they're trying to do right and and they see some kinship in you I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I, this this year one of the most interesting gigs that I had earlier this year was to to do some music for Dries Van Noten, who's a fashion designer from Belgium, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, also a thing that I didn't know much about or or how music um, could be integrated into something like a catwalk show. And nor did I ever feel that my music was designed for that, but he heard something in it, in in all the the layers and and textures that he felt kind of could complement what he was doing with his uh, collection. Right. And so it, it was it was really interesting because I actually he he basically heard a track off Twelve Bit Blues and wanted it. Ex- ex- kind of expanded upon to actually fit one collection and I was like well how long does the collection take usually it's 13 or 14 minutes is, is how long an actual runway show is mm-hmm. and so um, that was an interesting collaboration you know because I realized that my idea of oh don't doesn't everyone just listen to house music at those things <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean for him as a designer you know, he, he's also again. I found was just speaking very musical terms in terms of space and ambience and you know, um, arranging things and arranging the show uh, to arc and to have dynamics and and things like that. And, and, and it was just interesting to see and, and experience. You know, so often, sometimes even the most ambient parts that didn't even have any drums in them 
for instance, could have, you know, a break of a minute or a minute and a half with absolutely no rhythm was actually very uh, potent combination of, of that sound design and music with what was going on with the, the actual um, designs that he was showing on the run on the runway at that particular point in his show you know so he he was very into orchestrating it quite closely and I, I think that's that was really exciting actually just to see <laughs> that that as a designer he was actually listening that closely yeah, no, that's cool. It seems like people are are taking your music in their own art forms, and and it's interesting to see them kind of mingling together. It's that's very cool. Uh, you know, exactly. You know, and in the scent industry, like I, as far as I'm concerned, like it's not it's so far, and 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 the fa- the fashion industry is so far from like what I understand music. It's it's even, but if you think about it. <laughs> The eyes, the ears, and nose—it's all really all, all pretty close to the brain. Yeah, <laughs> it's like we find our common ground somewhere. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Speaking but, of, fun- you know, I didn't realize that in, in fashion. I was like, oh, it's all about what it visually looks like. And for when I started, you know, working with trees and stuff, and realizing that there are those elements it's still it comes back to that kind of emotive element that they're looking for and anything that can um bring light or focus that or make that more uh powerful they're into and, and they understand how music can do that so right. i'm ex- yeah i'm excited that these these types of opportunities are, are presenting themselves because again uh, even from a musical perspective, even if I just stayed in music, the reason why I chose this instrument or it chose me rather is, is because it's such a chameleon of an instrument anyway, you know, and to this, I've been scratching for over 25 years now and, and to find that, oh, well, it's because of this somehow I'm here at Paris Fashion Week or I'm here in a lab at IFS in New York, like with a, with was some very talented perfumer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, I, it's, I, mean, I can't always connect the dots that clearly, but I enjoy that it is still providing us these kind of adventures and, and opportunities to do things that I haven't, you know, I couldn't have dreamed of, really. Yeah. No, it's, started. It's, it's, it's amazing. And uh, one of the things that's coming up this week on June 13th, and I know you can't say too much about it because you don't know anything, but we're, we're looking forward to the Polaris Music Prize long list announcement, and I, I for one, am really hoping the 12-Bit Blues makes it onto the long list, and uh, I don't know if you've had any inkling, uh, if you know anything about this or if you care, but I'm just letting you know that as a jury member, I'm hoping it makes it on there. Oh, great, cool. That's on the 13th? They make the, long list, the long list announcement on, on the uh, 13th of June, and then... Okay. And then the short list then, is in July. And then there's like a bowling tournament or something. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, a, <laughs> that's right. All the records that are nominated on the long list are, are, are depicted on bowling pins, and we knock them down. All right. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, is there any other news that we need to know about? You've got a lot going on. Is there any other Kid Koala stuff that uh, that you want to share? I think that's enough for now. <laughs> that seems like a seems like enough. You've got like three appearances at Luminato in Toronto this week, and uh, 
mm-hmm. for more information. People... Yeah, we're doing a talk with uh, with uh, Buck sixty five and screenwriter Elan Mastai, and so we're doing that that talk that I guess what is it called? Lunchtime illumination or something? That's Lunchtime it, illumination, right? uh, Friday, June fourteenth, noon to one fifteen, uh, the hub at David Pico Square. And then uh, right. later that night, you can catch Kid Koala at 10.30 p.m. in the same place, the hub at David Pico Square, uh, where he will be performing Space Cadet. And then the same performance, uh, well, not the same, but uh, a similar performance will occur on yeah. Saturday, June 15th as well. Yeah, we we had to do two shows because it's, it's very limited to the number of uh, headphones that right. we have. right. So. And, uh, yeah, it's 20 bucks to go, and you can get more information at uh, LuminatoFestival.com and also KidKoala.com. Kid Koala, always a pleasure to speak with you. And, uh, I yeah, could, you as well. Good, good luck with everything uh, with, with this thing because it's uh, a lot going on. you got sight, you got smell, you got sound. Uh, yeah. I hope it all goes well. All right, great. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.